Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 will be our key text today. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8, the penultimate sermon in our series on 2 Timothy to be continued. I use the word penultimate because I like it. You guys didn't think that was funny. All right. It's a college word. Thank you, Vince. Yeah. When I was in college, in my second year, sophomore year, you begin to begin taking your Bible classes, your theology classes, if you're a preacher boy like me working on a bachelor's degree in Bible. And my second semester, the spring semester, we actually had a field trip. I can't remember that I'd had a field trip in school since, you know, like third or fourth grade, so this is pretty exciting. Even though you're 20 years old, you get to go on a field trip, but then you hear about the fact that you have to get up at 5 in the morning to be at the theology building by 5.30 to get on a, um, you know, 15-passenger van and drive three and a half hours from Abilene, Texas, where my school was, to Dallas, Texas. Well, the cafeteria wasn't open then. And I don't know that any restaurants nearby were open then, and I wasn't smart enough to have food uh, available for myself in my room. And uh, I had heard, however, that there would be donuts. Of course, I'm a young man, I'm a college student, I'm cheap, and I'm all about eating somebody else's donuts, right? So I show up in the parking lot at 5.30 in the morning, and I eat two donuts, one glazed, one chocolate. And what else goes better with donuts at 5.30 in the morning than orange juice, Right? So with my orange juice and my donuts, and then, of course, I'm one of those kind of kids, so I sit in the back of the van to ride three and a half hours from Abilene, Texas to Dallas, Texas. If you've ever been in Texas, you know it's windy. It may not be Nebraska windy or Kansas windy, but when you're in the back of one of those vans swaying back and forth down the interstate with two greasy, sugary donuts and orange juice alone in your belly, things begin to happen. We were about by Weatherford, Texas. We've traveled about an hour and a half. We've got two hours to go. And I holler to the front of the bus, you've got to stop now. You've got to stop now. And the guy driving looks at me like I'm an idiot. I'm like, no, really? You have to stop now. I have to get out. And he's like, what do you have to do? I'm like, you don't want to know. The dude pulls over. I run out, you know, take care of business behind a bush. It's cold. It's the sun's just coming up. I'll never forget that bush in that place. Uh, I could still point it out to you today when we drive I-20. We get the rest of the way to Dallas, and by that time, you know, I've kind of recovered my senses a little bit. I got something to drink to wash my mouth out, and I think I got a little something else to eat to kind of settle my stomach down and those sort of things. And they're taking us to Dallas to show us the Baptist General Convention of Texas headquarters, to show us how Baptist life works. And a part of that, they have a representative from the annuity board come to speak to us. The annuity board is now called Guidestone, and it's the retirement board for pastors and people that work for denominational agencies. And so here I am, a 20-year-old kid who hasn't even got a job yet, and the guy from the annuity board is talking to me about retirement. Now, I was a little surprised that they did that, but I thought, okay, you know, they're wanting us to learn how this stuff works, so yeah, we'll learn this thing too. But the one fact I will never forget is this. He showed us a chart that if you started saving for retirement at the age of 55 and saved 10% of your income, 
and it was this much, that by the time you retired at 65, you'd have that much. If you started at 45 and went to 65, you'd have that much. Started at 35, went to 65, you've had that much. And then he said, but if you just save for retirement from 25 to 35 only, just 10 years, and just let it sit there for the next 30 years, you would have more money than if you saved from 35 to 65, 30 years. I was floored. I was like, how can this be? What are you guys talking about up here? I didn't say that out loud. I was a little embarrassed that I didn't understand how these things work. But he explained to me about the miracle of compounding interest. That if you set that money aside and let it compound over time, that it multiplied. And the longer you let it sit there, the bigger it let it get. So the moral of that story, of course, is start saving for retirement even when you just started your job. I wish I would say that I did that right away, but I got there as soon as I could, about the age of 30, started saving for retirement. But I tell you this story for this reason. Our sermon today, which I've entitled Preaching the Word, is probably some of the very last words that we have recorded that the Apostle Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul isn't just in retirement age, he's near death and he knows it. And it's not the fit that he knows he's elderly and going to die. He knows, maybe by God's Holy Spirit speaking to him, that he's going to be put to death by the Romans that have imprisoned him for these crimes he's committed against the state. And so, knowing that he's going to be martyred, and maybe knowing that because they said, okay, hey buddy, here's your date, you got no appeals left. He writes this last letter to Timothy. And in this last letter to Timothy, and what we have is the last chapter, he's summarizing for Timothy in what we studied last week and what we'll study today. Here's the last most important summary statements I want you to know so I can pass down to you the things I learned so your life, your ministry can go better. Just like when I went to Dallas with a sick stomach and they were teaching me as a 20-year-old kid the things I needed to do through the rest of my career so that I would be able to end my career well. Paul is at the end and he's looking back and teaching Timothy and saying, here's how to live. So if you've got your Bible with me, would you stand if you're able and we'll read 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their eyes from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry." For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And these words of Paul to his son in the ministry, Timothy, that echo through the generations to us today to tell us how to live as followers of Jesus. We pray, Father, that we'd learn from you today and that not only would we be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our scripture memory verse of the month on the top of your outline comes from this passage of scripture. And that's 2 Timothy 4.2. We'll say it all together. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 2 Timothy 4.2. We'll talk about this one in a minute. But I want to turn your attention, of course, to the first point in your outline. And that is my commission to keep. My commission to keep comes from the first five verses here, verses one through five. My commission to keep. What am I supposed to do? Your first question there asks, how important is my job? How important is my job is your first question. Look at verse one. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, your Bible might start with it in reverse order. Your Bible very well may say, I charge you or I solemnly charge you. And if your Bible says that, that's the actual order in Greek. One quick side note for you is that the NIV that I use is what is called a thought-for-thought translation. So it doesn't have every word in the order that it was written down in the Greek. And because of the syntax, they chose to write it this way in English so it flowed better. Because you look at, see what he says then, why they would put, I charge you, what comes next? Verse 2, our scripture memory verse of the month. And he gives him these five different charges in verse 2. So I could see where NIV would put, I charge you, or I give you this charge, in the end, and it's a thought-for-thought translation rather than word-for-word like NASB or more word-for-word like ESV or CSB. So that side note aside, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, and He's not just any Christ, He's the one that's going to judge the living and the dead, I've got to tell you these things you have to do. Now, Paul is not writing to you personally. You are not Timothy. You're probably not a missionary. You're probably not a pastor. But you may not even look at Paul as your mentor and you his protege. But God recorded these words in Scripture for all of us to hear and for all of us to live. And these messages certainly apply to all of us. And my question for you is, how important is my job? And I'm not talking about the job that you do to make a paycheck. I'm talking about the job that you do as a believer in Jesus. I could have 
used a certain other word or phrase, but I chose to use the word job because it's simple and easy to write down, even if you're a kid um, or anything like that. But your job is your what God has asked you to do as a believer in Jesus. It's how you do what you do that points people to Jesus or pulls people from Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. It's your life and who's watching you. I was in Miss Linda Nettleton's Cubbies class this past Wednesday. They invited me because it's National Oreo Days, and Miss Linda knows that I like Oreos. So we had two Oreos, a plain Oreo and a birthday cake Oreo. It was interesting to see how the kids ate them and which they liked best. But I'm sitting in my little chair. Man, this is two weeks in a row. I've got a sitting in my little chair story. I like to sit in little chairs. And I think Linda said something like, since Pastor Aaron's here, let's let him pray and give thanks for our Oreos. And we also had cupcakes because it was someone's birthday. So we had a double snack. And one of the little guys said, I'll pray, Miss Linda. Linda says, well, yeah, you can pray. And he prays the most amazing prayer for a four-year-old. And he's like nailing it. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for our snack. Thank you for our friends. Thank you that we got here safe. Help us to get all home safe. And all this kind of stuff. And he says, with confidence, amen. And I was like, yes. A few minutes later with the cacophony of the classroom and like all the energy going around and I'm like eating Oreos and just getting jittery because of the energy of the preschoolers, I said to Linda, I said, how do you do this every week? And I think she thought I meant it as a negative question like these kids are hard, but I meant it because I was feeling like jacked up and jazzed up with emotion. And she said, because of this little guy right here pointing to the fellow that prayed. And I thought to myself, where did that young man learn how to pray like that? He saw somebody. He heard somebody. And he's probably a really smart little guy, but he heard it again and again and again and again. That prayer was modeled for him, the fact that you do pray and how you pray. And he learned from his mama. He learned from his daddy. He learned from people at church. And that's the point here with this question. How important is your job? And that is that somebody is watching you and somebody is learning from you. And if you're like me, You don't think about that as often as you should, and you may not be the best example that you'd like to be for your children and your co-workers and your friends and your family members. Maybe we need a little repentance right now around that point. In verse 2, Paul's saying, here's the charge. And he gives five exhortations. Exhortation is a fancy word for saying, do this, okay? Get her done. And these apply to all of us as Christ's followers. And if you look at verse 2, you see those. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Which leads us to our second question. How do I share God's word? If my commission to keep, my job is to live as a Christ follower in such a way that I'm setting an example for others to follow, that's how do I share God's word? And keep in mind when Paul uses the word preaching, he is talking about a spoken word, but more uh, than that, a broad application of how we live our life that people see Christ in us. In other words, you're always preaching. 
Your life is always showing somebody something. It's either drawing them to Christ or pushing them away from Christ because of the way you live. That phrase, be prepared in season and out of season, means to stand by, always at hand, ready at any time. I had an uncle that used to fly B-52 bombers in the Cold War. And he was based in various places around the world. And he talked about being in the ready room and that they had to be on standby. And they would be on standby for 48 hours or 72 hours separated from their family. And they may or may not fly during that time. But they had to be ready so they could scramble at any minute. And they didn't know if it was a drill or if it was the real deal when they sent them off in the air with their adrenaline pumping, even with all their training, until they got out somewhere and they said, okay, it's just a drill, you can fly back now. We've got to be ready like that. Ready to share God's word at any time. This word here in the middle of verse 2, rebuke, is a strong word. It is right next to censure somebody. Basically telling them, stop saying that and giving them some reason not to say it anymore. I skipped the word correct. Correction would be the duty of every pastor like Timothy, but it's the duty of every parent. It's the duty of every Christ follower. And then this last word, yours may say encourage. It may say exhort. That the way we go about this is further explained in the final phrase, with great patience and careful instruction. So Paul has said, here's five things to do. Preach, be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage. But now he says how to do it. The first is the manner, and the second is the method. Look, the manner that you are to preach, rebuke, encourage, and such, is with great patience, careful instruction, taking your time. And he says there with great patience and careful instruction, careful is the method that you take your time, that you're not hasty. Because if you tell somebody, don't do that, but you don't tell them how to do it right, if you say you're doing it wrong, but don't teach them how to do it right, you've missed your calling as a teacher, as a leader, as an example. So first, we had this question about what to do, and that our life is an example of preaching to others. The second is how to do it. And then our third question here is what challenges do I face? What challenges do I face? In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about a handful of challenges, mainly one underlying, but he says it in some different ways. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I love the way the King James says this. I'm going to try to read it without stumbling. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. Sometimes the King James just says it better, amen? Even though it doesn't speak English like we do 400 years later, there's something about the way it says it that reminds us of the truth of Scripture by the eloquence of a language. What Paul is warning about here and the challenges that we will face ever increasing 
as it comes closer to the time of Christ's return is that people aren't going to want to hear what the Bible has to say. Or they will want to hear what the Bible has to say, but with their own humanistic, relativistic, selfish, sinful worldview. Basically, he's talking about what I would call Burger King theology, right? You can have it your way. If you don't like the way that this pastor preaches it, well, don't go to that church anymore. You don't like the way that this person teaches it, don't listen to that radio program anymore. Don't buy that person's books. Don't subscribe to that theology. So the challenge for any and all of us then is how do I know what is true? What is right? What is it that will guard me from being one of these persons who's gathering folks to tickle my itching ears? How will I know that I have turned aside from the truth and turned to myths or fables? Have I gotten so far away from God that I lack that sort of discernment to tell what truth is and what a lie is? The number one thing you can do, of course, is read the Bible for yourself. Read it, pray through it, write about it, think about it, talk to others about it, and balance out your theology. Ask others to challenge you. And go to conversations in which you're uncomfortable that it's the edge of your understanding in order that you might grow to understand more. And yes, you may leave thinking, okay, I I believe I'm right and I believe that person doesn't have it all the way right. But at least you challenged yourself. At least you thought through your theology in order that you might be ready to receive good and reject falsehood at any time, to share good at any time with anyone in your life. We move to verse 5. We have a fourth question there, and that is, what is my attitude? What is my attitude? If my job is to preach the word at all times, to be example, and if I'm supposed to do that in a certain way, as Paul talked about there, facing people who aren't always going to agree with me and don't even know truth from a lie most of the time, what is my attitude in doing that? Look at verse 5. He says, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. This phrase, keep your head in all situations, be sober-minded. The King James, it says, watch thou. In other words, pay attention to your attitude. Be empathetic and sympathetic with others. Paul is saying this with the beginning there in verse 5 of but you to contrast Timothy to those folks that want to tickle their itching ears that don't know truth from myth. And he's saying in contrast again, but you, here's how you're supposed to live, Timothy, but it applies to us as well. And he's saying, keep a check on your attitude. I was talking to one of our church planners from Omaha yesterday, Jason Hutchison, and Jerry Maine knows it. Matter of fact, he brought up Jerry and how studious Jerry is in their classes they take together over in Omaha. And Jason is a Native American, and he was talking about ministry to Native Americans and how they basically want to have a syncretism where they take their Native American beliefs and their Christian beliefs and say, you know, I've got the best of both worlds. I've got both covered. 
and how he kindly has to challenge them, not that they've had their itching ears tickled to consider the truth. And the way in which he approaches them to say that, listen, Jesus is the one and only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to heaven except by him. And yes, there are certain practices of Native American culture we can uh, hang on to, and we will always be Native American uh, uh, by our race or uh, those things, our heritage. However, there's some things that cross the line when we're seeking to worship our ancestors or to appease gods or things like that. And how did he do that was the reason I bring this up. His attitude. His attitude had to be one that was patient with others. His attitude had to be the one of an evangelist. He's constantly telling the truth. And he's discharging all his duties. As he sees it, God's called him to be a pastor. And a pastor to Native American people like he's a Native American. And day after day, conversation after conversation, person after person, he's having these conversations to challenge them to turn to truth away from the myths and fables and the Burger King theology in which they want to have it their way. We have that same challenge as well. We're going to be faced with hardship and affliction, but we need to continue to lovingly, kindly share the truth. We need to continue to share what we know, to challenge what we know, and speak to others about these things. So Paul sees he's nearing the end. He is, as I said to you, giving his final instructions to Timothy. And the first portion here is our commission to keep, that our job is to be an example and to share God's Word with patience and kindness and grace as we deal with others to challenge them toward the truth. But the second half of our sermon today, verses 6 through 8, is Paul looking ahead to his reward. Paul's looking ahead to his reward, and that leads us to the second major point in your outline, is my reward to receive, verses 6 through 8. Yesterday, Melanie and I um, were at, as I said, I met Pastor Jason, but we were among a whole group of our pastors from the Heartland Church Network on Hill and Vanessa and Zuri were there with us at the pastor spouse retreat. And so we had pastors from all over our region. We've got about 70 churches and we had pastors, I think, from, oh, um, not quite 20 of them there, uh, maybe 20 different churches had at least one pastor that was able to make it to this pastor spouse retreat. Pastor Roger Kreiser was our speaker, and he and his wife Debbie spoke a little bit on Friday night and a little bit yesterday morning. And you may remember Roger from preaching here for me months ago when I was gone. He's a tall fella, and he's very energetic, and he sings silly songs. And all the kids from children's camp will know Brother Roger as he's known at children's camp. But one of the many things I appreciated about Roger and Debbie in talking about retirement, that they have just retired from ministry, was their intentionality and how they got there and the things they did, but also the confidence that they spoke of which they, the things they were able to do. Not with an arrogance, not with any hubris, not with any we're better than you, anything like that, but here's the things that God led us to, that we began to do, that became a habit, that helped us live a life so we could share with others and give to others, but also that we'd be able to retire with some security and look forward to this next chapter of our lives. And I share that picture because what you see here with Paul is that sort of confidence. He's not bragging 
He's just merely stating a fact. Like Yogi Berra said, it ain't bragging if you've done it, right? But look at what he says, verse 6. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. So Paul knows that he's going to, we can't say pass away, he's going to be executed. And he knows that that day is near. Now, most of us don't know when we're going to die, but all of us do one thing, right? We are going to die. Does anybody here plan on not dying? I mean, you could plan on it, but good luck fighting against that, right? If Jesus comes back before that day, yes, you'll ascend to heaven. You won't die a physical earthly death. But otherwise, all the rest of us know that someday we will die. It's just a matter of when and how. Paul knew how. Sounded like Paul knew when. And so the first question to apply this, my reward to receive question is, how do I spend myself? How do I spend myself is your first question there. Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He's hearkening back to the Old Testament in which there's all different types of offerings for all different types of things. And there was this idea of a drink offering that God had prescribed, and he's using that picture that those that came from a Jewish background would know, but also those involved in all sorts of other religious uh, backgrounds and upbringings would know that of pouring it out. When you pour it out on the ground, you can't put it back in there. It's gone forever. You can't drink it. Paul says, that's the way I'm spending my life. And he begs the question for us, how are we spending ours? What is it about my life that I'm giving myself to? How am I spending my time, my energy, my passion, my talents, my abilities? Is it something that's going to last? In our next verse, verse 7, there are three perfect tense clauses. The job's already done. There's finality here. Look at what he says. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's not bragging. He's kindly stating, with confidence stating, that this is how I've lived. Your second question there is, what have I accomplished? Paul said he was being poured out, but... He had lived a life of spending himself on behalf of others for 30 years. 30 years in ministry as a tent maker missionary in ministry. So he had a full-time job that he did to support himself. But he preached and he taught. And all the trials and all the tribulations and all the suffering he went through in order to give his life for others that they might know Jesus like he has. That first phrase there in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. It's a graphic word. It means a struggle. It means a contest. This is not, you know, WWE wrestling or anything like that, right? This is the real deal. Life and death. He says, I have finished the race. Notice he didn't claim to have won the race. He just said, I finished. When I was a marathon runner and years ago, John Mark was younger. I don't remember which marathon it might have been that I was running because I ran four. John Mark says to me the night before when we're saying bedtime prayers, he says, Daddy, are you going to win the marathon tomorrow? 
I said, oh, no, buddy, daddy's slow. The people that win the marathon will be about an hour and a half ahead of me. And he looks up at me and he says, why are you going to run? Thanks, son. (laughs) You don't run that race as an average Joe like me, who was in his 40s at the time, to win. Not at least against everybody else. You run it to see what you can do. To see how you can push yourself to your limits. To accomplish something you haven't accomplished before. And in the case of a marathon, you're searching for a PR, right? A personal record. Or at least to know based on the training that you did that yeah, you, you gave your best effort and you spent yourself for that marathon. Paul says, I have finished the race. The third phrase he uses there, remember it's perfect tense, so it's ongoing. Or it's completed, excuse me. He says, I have kept the faith. That could mean that I followed the rules. I, 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 I you know, followed the orders I received. But faith seems to be the objective of the race, of the fight. And he's saying, I did what I was called to do. I lived my life as an example to others, preaching the word, being prepared in season and out of season. I shared the truth to challenge myths and fables. And now I'm about ready to receive my reward, he says. I have accomplished these things because I set my mind to do it, and I spent myself for others. Verse 8, Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. That leads to your third question there. What can I look forward to? The crown of righteousness That Jesus, the righteous judge, gives to those of us who are in him. We are followers of Jesus. We've committed ourselves to him. And even though we know that we are sinful because he gives us his righteousness, he, the righteous king, gives us the righteous crown. So that when we enter into eternity, we will have his crown on our head, a crown of righteousness. We can look forward to it. All of us who are believers in Jesus, that will be our reward. And notice yours may say, mine said, but all who have longed for his appearing, yours may say all who have loved his appearing. It's a word that can be translated either way, but it's you're looking forward to eternity. So I started with the example of planning for retirement and starting early. And I told you a little bit about Roger and Debbie Kreiser, newly retired, and how they shared with us their intentionality, both in their relationship with Jesus, their relationship with one another, and their financial practices in order to be ready for retirement. And I did those two things to think about retirement for us, because all of us probably have. Even though you may be younger and don't think about it much, you should, because you know it's coming unless Jesus comes back, and we don't know if he's coming back. So you need to be ready. The other thing we know is this. That all of us have one life to live. And we only have so much time to give. We only have so much energy to give. We only have so much passion to spend. We only have so much money to give. How are we going to spend it in such a way that makes a difference? 
that intentionality to start early, to develop habits, to live a life day after day, moment after moment, ready at all times. That's the key that makes the difference. That's the way Paul lived his life. That's the way Paul challenged Timothy to live his life. And that's the way I believe this scripture challenges you and I to live our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you as always for your word that challenges us, that teaches us. And we know... That one day, all of us will pass away. And if we don't pass away, it's because life on this earth is over. Because Jesus comes back to judge the quick and the dead. And we pray, Father, that we might give our lives as those who are preaching the word, living an example, spending ourselves on behalf of others, then when we get to the end, whenever that is, we too can say, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. So, Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these words. Whatever we need to commit to you, whatever new habits or changes we need to make, would you... Lead us to surrender that to you today. If there's a soul here who needs to trust Christ as their Savior, would they do that now? To join our church, whatever it is, God, as we sing, would we respond? It's in Jesus' name, amen.